please stand for the reading of God's word. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in that which you have learned and have formerly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and from how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And also Matthew 16, 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever should save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And he will repay each person according to what he has done. Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who will not take step until they see the man, Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, many a Saturday night in the Livingston household is a family movie night and this one was no different. And uh, we've recently started doing some parental picks, like mom and dad picks for movies, so we don't have to be continually subjugated to things like the Lorax and <laughs> Despicable Me Too and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, we're like trying to culture them. We're trying to like bring them into like, hey, this is, you know. This, this is at least, for your age, good art. We did The Princess Bride a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, which Dante has once said, one of the most quoted movies uh, of, of, at least up here, uh, mainly the uh, quote, <clears throat> um, 
about, uh, oh, what, gosh, what is it? It's on the tip of my tongue at all times. Oh, the life is pain, your highness. Anyone tells you anything differently is selling you something. Uh, or is it to live by? Uh, and then so last night we, uh, oh, also another parental pick, a dad pick actually when Sharon was out of town. Honey, I shrunk the kids, um, which reawakened their love for oatmeal cream pie sandwiches uh, and all things. So yeah, this week uh, we went with The Greatest Showman, 2018, I believe, and uh, as we watched The Greatest Showman, I will say, uh, as an Enneagram 4, uh, I, I just stinking love the message of this film and love the film itself. Uh, I think at one point Hugh Jackman looks at whoever, whichever, you know, of the many, uh, as throughout the movie, they're called the freaks and, and uh, oddities of the people that he's collecting for this circus, which he's P.T. Barnum. He's playing the role of P.T. Barnum, if you are unfamiliar with it, and he you know, all of a sudden has the desire and the revelation to say, hey, I'm going to start something that people are going to gawk at and marvel at, but also is going to take things that people were laughed at and now make them a pro or a advantage or a asset. And so he's saying across from one of them, hey, nobody ever made a difference in the world by being the same as everybody else. And like, again, like your Enneagram 4s in the room are just like, yes, that is me. And, uh, and, and as I watched the film, though, um, you realize I, there's a truth to that that really stands out deeply in our hearts and our souls. There's this truth of just like, yeah, like there are ways that uh, you can be told, hey, you're different, you don't fit in, um, you are unworthy of that which is respect and honor and dignity just because there's something seemingly broken about you. But sometimes it's this broken pieces that you're like, no, that's actually like a place of strength and a place of vitality and something that actually can be enjoyed and it uniquely shows the image of God. We talk about that all the time, that every single person is imbued with the image of God. And so uh, it doesn't matter your capacities. It doesn't matter with that which is seen as broken or what. It not, all, there's a part of everyone Christian, non-Christian, full mental capacity, inhibited by birth defects, regardless of where you find yourself. We would not fully know what God is like without you, without each person. And, and that's what really resonates about the film. Um, but then there's also this message uh, of the film that our culture also just loves. And it is what I'm trying to, or what we as a teaching team are trying to address in the course of this new series that we started last week. And the series is called The Gift of Obedience. And the name is intentionally provocative in the sense of calling obedience a gift because in our culture, we do not see it that way. We don't see the idea of putting on an external identity, an external set of morals, an external set of this is what I should be or should do as a virtue. And again, there is the re reality that Greatest Showman points out. There are ways that we put on an external identity that's toxic and not good and not right for our humanity. But there's also uh, this sense that putting in any level of 
identity or external expectations leads to what I'm going to be calling, we, we call it authenticity and freedom, but I think it actually, while it has the air of that, has a toxicity to it. And it, we believe that it does this, putting on anything external. We believe it's corrosive to our humanity and causes us to bury our true identity. It denies us of who we are and prevents us from being who we were meant to be in our purpose and our meaning in life. It stands in the way of a happy and fulfilling life. It causes pain, often through anxiety or mental health issues. And it leaves us feeling isolated and alone due to being unaccepted. And yeah, again, you see that reality played out in these people in this movie. But in a similar cultural reference, uh, I biked in this morning and I was prepping for the John Mayer solo tour, which is coming next month, um, which I'm so pumped about. And uh, I came across, uh, Continuum is by far his best album and just the best you know, work that he's done. However, I also have a strong affection for Heavier Things, uh, the second, the sophomore album, which did not hit the sophomore slump, as many people do. Um, and in it, I hit the song Something's Missing. And you get this picture of John Mayer reflecting on the fact that his life is actually objectively all put together. And he has the point in the song where he starts going through all the things. He says, friends, check, money, check, well-slept, check, opposite sex, check, guitar, check, microphone, check, which is clever and also brilliant. And, um, and messages waiting on me when I get home. And, but he continually laments about the song. But something is missing. And I want to combine these two realities of... We are called to be, in culture, completely unique and put on this identity and seek freedom. But yet, even when we do that, even when we achieve that, we have, in many ways, like Mayer says, there's something missing. And other people experience it, like Ed Sisman, who's a poet, has passed, but he has this poem. It's short but powerful, uh, with a noted eth- uh, edit for it, because actually I think this is true the poem's called Men Past 40. I think this is actually true now of Men Past 30, and so I've made this edit. Men Past 30, get up at nights, look out at city lights and wonder where they made a wrong turn and why life is so long. Or you want to talk about maybe what authenticity or this sense of toxic freedom or toxic authenticity does. Uh, Let's look at it from the sense of uh, the woman side, particularly a mom. Uh, I think of the sense of what is expected for happiness and life and vitality uh, for moms. And uh, I came across the term sharenthood this week, which is the idea of that you must, as a mom, have a life that is worth sharing on social media. Uh, I've often called this keeping up the digital Joneses. Um, and this is what life asks you of you moms uh, in order for you to be healthy and wise and uh, all things good. Uh, You need to be an all-star mom. You have to have healthy meal plans, fun activities. Uh, You have to have your kids involved in activities. You need your kids to look thriving and well-dressed all times, Uh, that they are under control but not stifled in their personality. Uh, They are, uh, you're in the PTO or you volunteer in key causes. You project yourself with perfect images. Uh, You're attractive, you're physically fit, you're mentally fit. Uh, You have perfect hair, well-balanced, vegan diet. 
Uh, but you're also body conscious enough to care about those who may not be able to have the same time to work on themselves as you do. You're the perfect wife, you're supportive but independent, you're working and you've built your own business, you're financially savvy, therefore you're able to take great vacations and be well-dressed at all times. You have an Instagram-worthy house, including sponsored products uh, like linens and things in the background that people can click on in the description in order to purchase. Uh, you're influenced, you're informative, uh, as well as informed, you're poetically insightful and are able to speak and support all the right causes in even current events that have happened, you can speak to them instantly. Um, you are environmentally conscious, you're intersexually feministic, you're inter uh, internationally informed and uh, also, uh, for if you're a Christian mom, you're spiritually mature, you have time for daily devotion, prayer, often pictured with a hot coffee mug. You have time to lead your family in devotion. None of these things are necessarily wrong. But this, whether you find yourself in the picture of that Instagram Sharonhood, you find yourself in the picture of men past 30 who get up and look at city lights, or if you find yourself in something where you're like, that doesn't hit exactly where I'm at, but I resonate with the overall point. The reality is, is that our culture that drives in the sense of being striving for happiness and joy is giving us a system that things are shaking and things are about to fail. Like most of us feel probably on a day in day out, day out basis that you're on the verge of failure or you're under the weight of constant failure. But the interesting thing is that uh, in a scientific world, failure is actually seen as feedback. And so if you receive failure, you're simply meant to ask, what feedback is that giving? And often, of course, the feedback is that the system you have designed is breaking and unhealthy. And so the system, I would argue, that our culture has designed for us is breaking. And it's really freaking people out across, you know, if you just look across on social media, on current events, on just like, you know, talking heads on YouTube or whatnot, people are starting to really freak out because there's this idea that we were meant to head for a techno-utopia, eventually technology would come to a point where we would alleviate all pain and we would make things cheaply produced enough that everyone could be able to fly cheaply internationally and experience all goods and services at a modest budget. And there's also a breakdown of not just the techno-utopia, but also uh, a sense of the American dream that, you know, now we have more and more people graduating where you're not going to make more money than your parents. In fact, you'll either make the same or less and you'll take, be taking a step back. Uh, we have just an overall breakdown of that the way that life was supposed to be, the way that we were promised, is not what we're experiencing. And so again, you have people hitting a boiling point of anxiety in this culture because everything that you have been shooting for is crumbling. And so it begs the question, is our system designed perfectly to get the results that we're currently experiencing? And if we don't want to have the outputs we're experiencing, what are the inputs we must change the system upstream to actually make it life-giving and sustainable. And so that's 
where we want to get to in the teaching today. That's what I want to walk through with you right now. Um, in the idea of obedience, which again, often is a repulsive term, but I want to walk through the alternative in what I'm calling the enemies of obedience. And it is the lies that we believe. And it is the scheme that we have set ourselves on that is currently breaking down our humanity where actually the way out is finding yourself with the right objective constrictions that bring life. But first, let's talk about what is the idea of secularism, or if we're going to find secularism, and I'm going to define it by Mark Sayers' definition. Mark Sayers, uh, in his book, Reappearing Church, uh, which is basically, I'm just going to take all of that and just repackage it for you here really quickly. And so, uh, not the whole book, but at least a very crucial part of it. So either way, Mark Sayers, Reappearing Church, if you want to go deeper into this, a uh, good read. And so, uh, in it, he defines secularism as the desire to have progress without the presence of God, or he says it like this, in a post-Christian vision, progress replaces God's presence as the engine of history. And what he's getting at is the same thing Paul's actually getting at in Timothy 2, 3 that we read when he talks about Janus and Jambres, which you like have that moment of like, who in the world are Janus and Jambres? And actually, if you go to a biblical concordance, you will find their names do not appear in the Old Testament interacting with Moses, like apparently Paul says they do. But if you look at the Qumran, which is from the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find that Janus and Jambres are the names given to the sorcerers or the wise men who oppose Moses when he goes to give the ten plagues and he gives the plague of the, he sets down his staff and becomes a serpent and then the magicians come and they do the same thing. And so Pharaoh's like, well, that's not all that impressive. And then they come and he changes the Nile to blood and then they change water to blood and Pharaoh's just like, okay, what else you got? And so then he makes frogs come out of everywhere and then eventually they make frogs come out of everywhere. And then he makes the, he hits the ground and gnats come out from the dust and then they're like, we're out, we can't do gnats. And so at that point, uh, they're just a continual sense of like, okay, the God who is behind Moses' power is greater than that, what these people can do. And Paul, I think, is intrinsically or uh, is specifically bringing up this event because he's talking about all these things that people find themselves in, that there's going to be people in these last days, and he goes through all of this list of the things that they do, which I always find uh, very interesting that the idea that um, he brings up people who are disobedient to their parents uh, and puts that in his list, you know, just like there's been people that are slanderers and debaucherous and abusive and people who do not clean their rooms even when asked. And, <laughs> and he says that there's a way in which all of this is going to look life-giving, but it's like Janice and Jambres, who had an appearance of power, but it wasn't real. It didn't actually have something that was actually powerful enough to bring life. And so, let's talk really quickly about what that is in comparing the salvation scheme given to us in Scripture and comparing it to an actual very eerily similar salvation scheme that you and I actually believe and practice on a daily basis that we don't think we do. So the salvation scheme of the Bible is very simple. You probably heard it if you've been around church. And it lasts, it's four points. People would call this maybe the four acts of Scripture in which you start with creation 
Eden, the idea of all things being good and right and perfect and true and everything being right in the universe, God and humanity, heaven and earth being overlapped and in perfect union. And then comes the fall, which is humanity decides we want to go our own way, and then the world and creation now becomes forever somewhat scarred and broken and produces pain, and all of a sudden sin and destruction are the, what rules the world. And then the whole scriptures are looking for salvation or restoration, which then comes in fully in the person of Jesus who lives, dies, and is resurrected and says, hey, I'm bringing in a new life. But not only the, that moment, but also all the way up until that moment. He says, hey, the kingdom of God is here now, meaning I am bringing life to the full now. You're going to see me push out disease and death and the demonic, and you're also going to see me usher in a whole new way to be human. He's even going to talk about that in the Sermon on the Mount, which I've heard referred to, and I actually agree, a better, an alternative title to that could be a whole new way to be human, considering the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God. Or maybe you could say, the way we were designed to be human, that is now made possible, considering the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And so then after restoration, salvation becomes new creation or life in the kingdom. And so this is, if you are a believer, the salvation scheme that you believe you're living out. But I would like to argue that most of us in all of culture actually find ourselves living out what is called the, uh, Mark Sayers is going to call the secular salvation scheme. And it has all of these pieces because Judeo-Christianity has just so affected our thinking but it trades them for slightly different levels of things that have the appearance of power, but at the end of the day have no ability to actually bring life. And so it starts with an Eden or a creation. It's the idea that you are created, perfect and beautiful and innocent, and as untarnished by the world. And in this moment, you can only go down because the world and brokenness is sure to eventually cause your personal fall, which this fall then becomes, I mean, it can be a lot of things. Uh, it can be trauma uh, that you've experienced in your past. Uh, it could be just simply the presence of pain and suffering that comes into your life, uh, whether internal, psychological, external. Uh, it becomes the responsibilities and the work that you have to do, the idea of just like clocking in, clocking out like Bill Murray and Groundhog's Day and continually pushing through this sense of a soul-crushing job that you must do in order to just eventually safely arrive at death with a 401k. And you have just generally hard and discomfort can be parts of the fall. Um, commitments, external commitments. Adulthood just becomes part of the fall in this. Uh, external traditions become part of the fall. The idea of just like following tradition rather than following a level of like what is here and now and present, what just makes sense to me. And again, not these things are not wrong. Trauma is a real thing, and a lot of these things are real things that happen. But this internalized becomes, again, the fall that goes against the, what was once a perfect and life-giving identity myself. And so then you have ideas of sin, and the ideas of sin, how you perpetuate this in your life, are two things. 
Um, one, you have a low self-esteem or a sense of self-loathing. And number two, you feed into this sense of an unhappiness, or at least not seeking your happiness. And the interesting thing in the book, Hacking the American Mind, I talked about this last week, it talks about how in the world of now, we've exchanged happiness. The idea of happiness used to be contentment. All is right with the world, and I'm at peace. But instead, in a consumeristic, capitalistic world, we change that to pleasure. All of marketing exists to say, you are discontent. But if you have this, you will be content. But in order for that engine to keep going, you have to continually be discontent and you need another, your cup needs to be refilled. And your experience needs to be replayed out or you need to have another travel date on the calendar or another product in line or a subscription where it just keeps coming indefinitely. The next episode will play automatically in five, four, three, two. And so you find yourself in a constant sense of I need more and more pleasure because that's what will bring happiness. And so again, you, you feed into it by you take on responsibilities, you take on expectations, maybe you even take on external morality. And so then it says, hey, there is salvation, there is restoration possible. And salvation comes in this. It comes in shedding all external given commitments extending, uh, and discovering your authentic self, your authentic purpose, your authentic meaning. A lot of times you'll hear people just say things like, man, I've like had a really tough year or a really tough time. I need to take some space and get in touch with who I am and what I was meant to do. I need to go camping. I need to practice mindfulness. I need to get out in the wilderness and just reconnect with that inner child, which is an old pop psychology term, but whatever you would call it now is more or less what we're referring to, that state of Edenic perfection. And then, in order to maintain this, you have to practice discipleship. And discipleship in this looks like this, an achievement culture that has measurable goals in which you consistently make your life 10% better than it was before. So it's something that is a smart goal, specific, it's measurable, all the other things. And it constantly is saying these little life hacks. If I have these 10 things to make my relationship more passionate, five ways to burn fat while I'm working at my desk. And whatever it is, whatever these ideas of discipling yourself into more and more pleasure, you then have to take that pleasure and do as we talked about at the beginning. You have to create an image which is externally curated to be both accepted and pleasing to all people, but also authentic and identified to who you are. And so it becomes image management. Learning to think and to do and to be the right things 
both to yourself and to everyone else at the same time. And here's the reality of this. Most of us take the Christian scheme and the secular scheme and we just jam them into this weird perversion of a mix. And so it comes with, this is what historically has been called the prosperity gospel, but whenever I say prosperity gospel, everyone always just thinks of some version of the prosperity gospel that you are not buying into and think like, okay, good, I'm not like the prosperity gospel. The original sin of the American church is the prosperity gospel, meaning no one escapes it. If you are in an American church, if you are here this morning, you are functioning and having to regularly repent of some version of the prosperity gospel. It's not just if you believe the right things, you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Sometimes it's more, again, the self-betterment prosperity gospel. If I believe and learn and do the right things, Jesus will help me heal from my previous wounds. He will help me live into my true identity. He will allow me to achieve happiness. Or it's the missionally focused prosperity gospel. If I do the right things, if I create a faithful enough church, if I do am scripturally bound in the right ways, then we will have a growing, healthy, thriving church that will fulfill the mission of God. And whatever it is, fill in the blank, you live in some level of Jesus will help me be my true self, will help me experience pleasure, will help me fulfill my meaning and purpose in life. The only problem is that it rejects Jesus' clear and simple call to daily pick up your cross, to die to yourself, to practice the way of following after him in the way that he's taught you to be human. Sayers points out this idea that there's like three major reserves that all humanity has to have. You have to have like a deep level of three things in order to have a sense of stasis to your soul. The first one is meaning. You have to have a deep reserve of meaning. I mean, again, like a reserve being like, you have to not just have this present, but you have to have an aquifer under your soul of meaning, of a sense that what I'm doing matters. It has purpose. It doesn't just get washed away like sandcastles at high tide. And I am a part of perpetuating the story of the world and the universe and creation. So you have to have a certain level of meaning um, you have to have a reserve of community. There have been studies how you need all different levels of community. You need um, levels of like the deep, close friendship, or the deep, close relationship, whether through marriage uh, or you know, 
best friends or whoever, somebody who knows you deeply, understands you, and yet also accepts you. You need to have uh, more just like acquaintance-based relationships. You need to have just people that you know when you pass them. You say hi to them. You know their names. You need to have a connection to just like the level of like we are in the same city together and we all root for the same sports team and we wear the jersey and we all high-five because we have a level of connectedness there. There's all of these different levels of community that your soul needs. And it has to all create this deep reservoir of community. And then lastly, you need a reservoir of freedom, a sense that you are able to be your true self. But here's the interesting thing. The first two reserves are completely depleted in our lives. We constantly struggle with a sense of that, what am I doing and what meaning do I really feed into? And then, of course, books like Bowling Alone or what all the things, which was, Bowling Alone was a book about how, like, we are no longer, like, in bowling leagues, but now we're just bowling by ourselves, which you're like, who is bowling anymore? That's because this book was written, like, 20 years ago, and it was a problem then, pre-iPhone. And so all the more, you have a deep sense of being isolated in a full room, or you can put something out that's going to get tens, twenties, hundreds of likes, but nobody actually knows you. But then the third reserve we actually have in spades, we have crazy amounts of freedom. Not just freedom like, yes, we can build our identity, we have freedom of choice, we have freedom to essentially experience, do whatever you will. So we have this level of freedom reserve that actually is so overfull, it's what becomes toxic. We talked about last week the idea of the book of the paradox of choice, of that you have all the options in the world, but the problem is, is that you're more dissatisfied with whatever you choose because the options make you realize all the things you are not experiencing. And so we have freedom at a level of toxicity with the other two that are so bankrupt. And Sayers gives the idea of, of what Paul is talking about, that what we need to do ultimately is we need to sacrifice our freedom for the sake of the other two reserves, meaning and community. Because everybody wants community, everybody wants meaning in their life, but in order to have those, you must intrinsically give up your freedom. In order to have community, you have to do things like make commitments, both in relationships, you have to commit your time, you have to commit your resources to other people, uh, you have to sacrifice, you have to bear one another's burdens, you have to care for someone even at expense to your own well-being. Uh, another study that's out recently that has looked at the fact that the one denominator that denotes people to have a more happy life is the presence of relationships, typically experienced through either marriage or children. But regardless if that is the reality for you or not, it's the idea of having these deep relationships so you can isolate every factor, income, place of, you know, 
country, race, uh, you know, identity, all these things, and you can isolate that. And the number one thing that just people who report to be generally happy are those who have deep, committed relationships. And then you have to do things like uh, put on expectations to yourself. Other people expect things from you. My children have expectations that I have to fulfill or I disappoint them. Is that right? Is that wrong? Well, ultimately, some of the expectations they have are wrong. Some of them they have them are very right and true. You have to take on responsibilities. You have to participate in traditions in order for you to have that level of like, hey, we're all the part of the same thing. We wear the jersey. We do all this stuff. You have to have a sense of this is a tradition that we have practiced. And I don't even really practice with this community that's with me. I've practiced throughout history. It's been practiced with brothers and sisters before and after me and all throughout time and history. The same thing for meaning. You have to sacrifice. You have to endure pain. You have to endure commitment, expectation, responsibility. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 9 like this. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way as to take the prize. Everyone who competes in the games trains with strict discipline. They do it for a crown that is perishable, but we do it for a crown that is unperishable, imperishable. Therefore, I do not run aimlessly. I do not fight like I am beating the air. No, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that when I have preached to others, I, may, uh, I myself will not be disqualified. What's fascinating about this vision of what Paul is doing is that this is something that we intrinsically get. We get the metaphor of like, if you are like, I want to be in better shape six weeks from now, and then I see you six weeks from now and say, what have you been doing? And you say like, Netflix and eating Malto meal cereal. Uh, then there's like a level of like, okay, well, you should generally expect that you have not gotten in better shape. And we, we understand that. We understand like, okay, there is a direct correlative relationship with this desire that I have and the inputs that I'm putting in. But then we have this idea of like, okay, let me step into the idea of I'm going to make my body my slave in a sense of laying down my desires, picking up a cross and following Jesus and stepping into obedience. And we don't want to do that, but then we look around and expect to have meaning and community and a sense of control in our lives. I guess the last one is you don't get a sense of control either way. Sorry, nix that. But a sense of contentment, of happiness, not because I'm feeling pleasure, but because all things are well. And so if secularism, and we'll end here, if secularism is seeking progress without the presence, then the invitation is to seek God's presence by doing the simple yet very difficult, putting on a cross on your back, daily dying to yourself and following after Jesus to experience his presence, 
his life, his vitality. It looks like committing yourself to an external expectation, but the right life-giving external expectation that disciplines my body, it makes it my slave. Why? In order that I can be something that I'm not? Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, I'm not naturally filled with love and joy and peace. I'm not naturally patient and kind and gentle. I have no faithfulness. I have no self-control. But I want it. And if I want to experience a different output, I need to change my inputs. That's what we want to talk about for the next five to seven weeks. But now, in this moment, let's take communion together. In communion, we are enacting that salvation scheme. The salvation scheme of I have been created in the image of God, but yet sin and destruction, my own choices, have put me in a place where I am separated from Him and therefore broken in this world. But yet I take a part of His death, I take on His cross, and therefore I have the ability for restoration and to live life in the kingdom of new creation. But it's not just like I take the blood and the body and therefore I have no further expectation. You are saved fully by grace with no ability to, or no necessity to have to earn it. But then you're welcomed into a kingdom of life and vitality of, hey, follow after me and let me teach you a way that is a light burden, an easy yoke. Come to me if you're broken and you're worn out and you're weary, and I will give you rest. By freeing yourself of everything? No. Freedom has not really worked out for you. You're going to have to give up some of that, trusting that you'll have enough of it that I'll give it back to you. And then I'll give what you cannot have until you lay down your life in order to save it. And so we participate that by taking the body that is broken of Jesus for me, yes, and the blood that is shed for him, but also recognizing that I am also having to regularly break my own body and shed my blood, as Paul says, in order to become free. Not to earn my salvation. As we said last week, Dallas Willard, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So when you're ready, please come take of the bread by tearing it, dipping it in the cup with gluten-free so you can be Instagram-worthy. Um, I'm joking. That's, I'm joking for the gluten-free amongst us. Uh, let's pray. Father God, uh, Lord, I pray for us to be able to look at our own lives and look at ways that we are putting in inputs of chaos, but yet expecting peace. Um, and Lord, to have a level to be able to repent of those without shame, but with invitation towards freedom in life and freedom that comes by counterintuitively giving up our freedom. Lord, taking on these things that we otherwise would consider the 
enemies to our life, like pain and suffering and responsibility and commitment, but in them finding life and life the full through meaning, through community, through a sense of being truly free as you've defined it. And so, Lord, I pray against the lies that would regularly tell us that we have to look out for ourselves because you were unwilling to do so, or that because of all objective realities in the world that are breaking down, we can't put our trust in you. And yes, I can say I can, but I can't actually get my, my hand to let go and grasp onto what is steady. And so, Lord, I pray that we would let go of that lie and that we would take a step forward in this season toward laying down our lives, dying to self, picking up a cross, and finding life through death. In Jesus' name, amen.